Our Old Testament reading is from Proverbs chapter 5. We'll read Proverbs 5 verses 1 through 6 as we continue to read our way through the book of Proverbs. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Before we turn to the first commandment, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of God's word. Almighty God, from the beginning you were pleased to speak, and it was a word of power, uh, bringing forth that which it commanded. In the fullness of time, the eternal word became man. The Lord Jesus Christ appeared as the light and the life of man. And so now he has promised to sustain us by his word as our risen and ascended Lord, our King, the one in whom we stand before you by your great grace, O God. And so we would ask that we would not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from your mouth, that you would prepare our hearts as good soil for the seed of your word, that you would be pleased to bring forth a rich crop, 30, 60, 100 fold. That you would posture us in meekness before your word, that we might receive your word implanted with meekness. And thus enjoy the full salvation, which is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Attend my mind, attend my heart, Lord. Penetrate the heart as only you can. How wonderful you are, Lord, that your word can have such a blessed effect. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And continuing on in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We're still in the first commandment. But we've moved from that which is required to that which is forbidden. And so we'll read question 47. Right after I read Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. This is God's word. You shall have no other gods before me. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Mm. Question 47 asks, what is forbidden in the first commandment? The first commandment forbiddeth the denying or not worshiping and glorifying the true God as God. And our God, and the giving of that worship and glory to any other which is due him alone. Amen. 
Amen. We'll make three observations from this question as we turn from what the commandment requires uh, to what the first commandment forbids. And if you're unfamiliar with the Reformed um, interpretation of the Ten Commandments, uh, each, um, each commandment which forbids something also commands something. Um, and each commandment which commands something also forbids the opposite. And most of the commands are set in the negative. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. But the positive is also entailed. And so we've been looking how this first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, also entails and perhaps more pressingly presses upon us that we shall have the true and living God as our God. And we've been looking at what that means. To have the true and living God as our God. But it's worth noting that it's stated as a negative. You shall not have any other gods before me. And so this question 47 specifies what is forbidden uh, when it says you shall not have any other gods before me. And we'll take uh, each of the three main parts of the question as the points for our consideration. Uh, it forbids denying God. The first commandment forbids denying God. The first commandment forbids not worshiping God. And the first commandment forbids giving our worship to any other than God. So first, denying God is forbidden. It's a terribly... It's terribly sinful to deny God. Just let that settle in for a moment. Think of how many the world over deny the true and living God and how egregious such a thing is. Look at your own heart. Examine whether or not you've thought it reasonable to any degree that someone might deny God. Mm -hmm. Scripture is unequivocal. It is egregious to deny the creator. It's egregious to deny that there is a creator. It's egregious to deny that there is one to whom we owe thanks, praise for all that he has given us and all that he is. You can look in Psalm 14 if you care to turn to Psalm 14. You're welcome to. It's a well-known opening to a psalm. Psalm 14, verse 1. Psalm 14, verse 1 opens, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. We see here the sinfulness of denying that there is a God. Let's make a couple of observations from this verse. Denying God is foolish. The fool says there is no God. You're familiar with this word, uh, 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 Naval. It's the name of Abigail's husband, Nabal. If you can recall Nabal's story, do you remember this story uh, where David and his men protect a, a wealthy landowner and, and his servants and their flocks? And David and his men are 
fleeing Saul at the time, and they set up basically a protection ring around these men from bandits. And David tells Nabal at the time of sheep shearing, we're friends. We've expended care to your servants. Let us join in the festivities with your men. And what does Nabal say? There's many who rise up against their master. I don't know David. I don't know his men. They have no share with me. And David says, time to die. <laughs> and it's only good Abigail who keeps David from committing a sin. David almost stumbled there, but Nabal's sin was the worst. How do we know? Because God killed him <laughs> that very night. Nabal was a fool. He denied that which was plain. He denied that which any child could have seen. That David and his men were good. That David and his men had done Nabal's house good. That it was most reasonable for Nabal to extend thanks to David and his men and the fool that he was. He didn't. And he forfeited his life. Consider the magnitude of folly for the creature to deny the existence of the creator. Think of the patent absurdity, the foolishness necessary. It's like fish denying water. Human beings denying the existence of air. Children denying the existence of their parents. <laughs> To deny the existence of that which is most basic to your existence is the height of folly. The fool says in his heart. We can notice also that denying God can be quite subtle. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. We can differentiate between two types of Atheism. There's the theoretical, philosophical atheism that gets a bit high-minded. And it thinks a lot of itself. It thinks it's found a clever way to prove that which is unprovable. <laughs> but there's a more common type of atheism, isn't there? There's practical atheism. Practical atheism is the living as if there is no God. It's the living as if there is not a God before whom all things are plain and manifest. It's the living as if there is not a God who will call to account. Oftentimes, this is the type of atheism that we see in the Psalms. It's just not so much that there's a philosophical argument that God doesn't exist, but he doesn't do anything. He doesn't see. So whether he is or he isn't, it doesn't matter. I'm going to do what I want because either he doesn't see or he doesn't care. <laughs> the denial of God can take these rather quiet and subtle shapes. Anytime you act, anytime I act as if there is not a God before whom our hearts are laid bare. Anytime we entertain that ridiculous notion that just because nobody sees us do it, nobody knows that we've done it. There's a foolishness to even the subtleties that denying God can take. 
But we can also notice last the inevitable consequences of such a foolish premise. They have become corrupt. They've done abominable deeds. There's no doer of good. To deny God is not some neutral proposition which one can take care of and then go on living a good life. The denial of God is intimately bound up with moral depravity, with the course of sin and destruction and cruelty and harm and exploitation. It was Dostoevsky himself who said, if there is no God, then anything is permissible. <laughs> he saw. <laughs> he saw what many people don't see. Namely, they're going to live consistently with this understanding that there is not one who holds to account, and thus I'm not accountable, <laughs> and I will do as I please. There is an interesting sense here in which this final statement, there is no God, can be seen either as the climax of corruption or as the commencement of further corruption. Are you tracking with me here? This is a little bit sophisticated. Is the declaration, there is no God, the climax of corruption or is it the commencement of corruption? Yes, is exactly right. Both have validity, don't they? Oftentimes, we wrangle our beliefs to justify our sinful actions. We want to sin, and so we configure our beliefs to suit the sin that we've already set our mind on. Perhaps you can recall Anna Karenina in this moment. Anna had set her heart upon Vronsky. She had set her heart on adultery. And she executed it. And retrospectively, she had to convince herself that she had a terrible marriage from which she had to escape. It was a lie that she had to adopt to justify the course of action she had already set herself on. But sometimes it goes the other way, doesn't it? Where what we believe then opens up a natural trajectory and a sinful bearing. If I convince myself that I have a right to a certain thing, well, then I'm going to steal it. <laughs> the belief precedes the action. If I convince myself that I am some sort of victim where I've been wronged, then I can justify any manner of activity to right that wrong. The belief precedes the action. And so it is with this complicated proposition, there is no God. Oftentimes we deny God after we've taken the sinful course, and sometimes the sinful course proceeds from the denial of God. There's kind of a dark poetry in the Hebrew of verse 1 here. The fool says in their heart, there is no God. And God says to the earth, there is no do-gooder. Those two are set in balance. The fool saying, God, there is not. God saying, one who does good, there is not. <laughs> and we can pause here and rejoice. 
Because there is one who has done good. There is one who has never denied God. Even when the world railed around him, demanding that he forsake his father, demanding that he do what they desired him to do and thus show himself to be disloyal to the true and living God. He refused to deny, even though it cost him his life. And therein, he did us good by bearing the good testimony even unto the end. The first commandment forbids denying God. Mark, if your heart still doesn't wrestle with this temptation to fit your beliefs to your sinful actions, to adopt a convenient understanding of the true and living God so that you can get on with your way. Rejoice that the Lord Jesus Christ came and never once denied the true and living God and in so doing has rescued you. Second, the first commandment forbids not worshiping the true and living God. We noticed earlier that the word worship can have a broad sense and a narrow sense. In a narrow sense, when we say worship, we mean public worship. The congregation of the redeemed being summoned into the presence of God to declare his mighty acts and the Lord Jesus Christ to rehearse his word such that it's emblazoned upon our hearts to call upon him in prayer. This is the narrow sense of worship. But there's a broader sense as well, and you see it in Romans chapter 12, wherein worship also means a comprehensive devotedness unto something. Now, the only one who deserves comprehensive and unqualified devotion, it's not your husband, it's not your wife, even those you have to make qualifications, don't you? It's not your children, it's not your parents, the only one who is worthy of comprehensive and unqualified loyalty, love, and devotion is the Lord God, the true and living God. To not devote oneself to the true and living God, to not worship the true and living God is also a grave offense. If you'd like, you can turn in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we'll read verses 20 and 21. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Again, Mark, if our hearts don't look out over the masses who do not acknowledge the true and living God, who do not follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And somewhere in our hearts we think, well, it's reasonable. Maybe God should just speak louder. Maybe he should do something more. It's reasonable that they don't. It's reasonable that so many refuse to bow the knee. It's reasonable that so few give him thanks, so few Honor him as God. 
Scripture takes the exact opposite view on the matter. It says he is screaming. <laughs> that on the day of revelation, the shame that will cover the hearts of all people for not worshiping him will be universal for those outside of Christ. Every single heart found outside of Christ will be forced to put their hand over their mouth. So plain was his testimony that he is good, that he is worthy of worship, and that he is the giver of every good gift. Isn't that what Paul says in these verses? You tell me how, how, how wide has the testimony of this God been cast? How recent has it dawned? Paul says, from the beginning of time. <laughs> That's what he says. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. There has never been a time in human history where the song of God's glory has not rung forth. And is this true just in one place? Does Paul say in Jerusalem this song alone? No, he says every area of creation, this song fills the world. The plain voice which declares God's eternal power and his divine nature, his goodness. How indiscriminate is he with his gifts? Isn't this what Matthew says? Consider to your life before you came to Christ. Did, did you enjoy the sun? Had you ever felt rain? <laughs> Did you eat of the earth's harvest? I know wine is well enjoyed the world over, and that is a most excellent gift. Meat, marriage, children, success, strength, health, cognition, the five senses, these most basic gifts that he gives so indiscriminately he's good not a little good not sometimes good not good to a few he is all good all the time to all mark if your heart has admitted a different testimony it's a lie it's not true. And God's word, his creation, and your experience bears the right testimony because you've received good from him. This song of this God is everywhere. Isn't that what we sang? The whole earth is full of your glory. The whole earth sings praises to you. The scope and the plainness of this testimony is universal and crystal clear. That's what he says. He says it's clearly perceived. That's really interesting. Because he doesn't even just say it's clearly present. 
It's clearly perceived. That the testimony has made some inroads into the human person. And it's no wonder. Because laughter abounds. (laughs) These gifts are enjoyed, and the joy which these gifts bring have a way of seeping into the heart. And every good and perfect gift comes down from above. The universal testimony, the plain testimony, all times, all places, with absolute lucidity. And so it's no wonder that Paul here says that human beings have somehow managed to do the impossible, which is not worship a creator who is so plainly worthy of worship. Somehow we've managed not to do the very thing we were made to do. And so Paul presses upon our hearts the treachery of this. For although they knew God, they knew God. Who? Everyone. 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 Your friends who chase after their own desires. They know him. Your family, who chase after their own desires. They know him. They know him. It's not a matter of knowledge. It's a matter of desires. (laughs) They refuse to honor him as God And to give him thanks. It's a dreadful condition that they occupy before this God. One of the first things we teach our children. To give thanks. Right? You say please. You say thank you. It's most basic. We still feel this deeply, right? You even say thank you. So I'm not going to make a deal. I'm a Christian. I'm going to overlook it. I'm going to complain to my wife. But then I'm going to overlook it. (laughs) This is the most basic exchange between human beings. You've done me a kindness. Thank you. Consider the kindnesses which he has rendered not unto neutral entities. Consider the kindness that he renders to those who refuse to acknowledge his existence. Just try to configure that scenario in your own home. Imagine you have children who one day decide to stop acknowledging your existence. How long would it take you to stop doing them good? Mm-hmm. A day? <laughs> good morning? Nothing. Good night? Nothing. Here's your food? Nothing. Here's your clothes? Nothing. Mm-hmm. Can I take you to school? Nothing. Mm-hmm. Can I pay for your education? Nothing. 
that doesn't even hold a candle to the magnitude of human beings in gratitude. We would leave off doing even our own children good in the face of such recalcitrance within 24 hours. He hasn't left off doing good since the fall of Adam. He's really a remarkable God, is he not? And not just that. For in this way, he loved the world. The world. A hostile entity. The world. An opponent to the true and living God. In this way, he loved them. By giving the beloved son. Not only does he feed, not only does he clothe, not only does he send the rain, not only does he give the sun, not only does he provide wine, not only does he give marriage, not only does he give children, not only does he give sight, but he redeems. He spares from the judgment which should rightly fall upon sinners. Would any doubt his goodness? None can raise a charge against this God. The only charges that will be raised and stayed on the day of judgment will be against his treacherous creatures. Who rejected not once, not twice, but over the course of whatever life the Lord allotted to them, the plain testimony of his wisdom, his power, and his goodness. Not worshiping God is forbidden. And it's not hard to see why. But last, we can remark that giving our worship to any other is forbidden. You can look down just a few verses Starting in 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Again, we can note man's willingness in this dreadful exchange. They exchanged the truth for a lie. They willingly set apart, set aside that testimony and adopted that which they preferred. They willingly ignored, downplayed, closed their eyes to this plain testimony of his wisdom, his power, and his goodness, this plain testimony to how plainly he is worthy of all worship and honor and thanks and praise, they willingly gave that up and took unto themselves a lie. Paul says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. 
and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. But if we do insist upon man's responsibility in this, his willfulness in this, we do have to go on and say that man is also deceived in this. And it takes the deceiver to deceive, doesn't it? That's what it says. There's a lie. There's a lie that is vying with God's truth. There's a lie that is seeking to gain the allegiance of the hearts of man. What could Paul have in mind here? Well, what's the lie? You can be his gods. <laughs> it's the lie that set the whole thing on this dreadful trajectory. God says, I am God and there is no other. But you, oh man, I've set my love upon you. You are the crown jewel of this amphitheater of my glory. I created all of this, all these other creatures in whom there is life. Each of them are created after their own kind. But you, you're in my image and likeness. You're over it all. Everything I have is yours. Be unto me not a God, but a servant. And as a servant, a king. It was a glorious position to inhabit. It was one which ought to have satisfied. <laughs> and then the dragon came and said, it's not enough. Everything he's given you isn't enough. We're still vulnerable to that, aren't we? Everything he's given you isn't enough. That's not the lie, but it's lie adjacent. You don't have enough. And if you get that little bit more, if you get that next thing, if that thing that you think is finally going to satisfy, if you get that thing, then you'll be satisfied. You won't. Not unless it's Christ. Everything he gave, freely, abundantly, it's all yours. It's all yours. And then the snake comes and says, he's hiding something. He's keeping you from something wonderful. He knows you'll be as gods. And that lie. Mm -hmm dethroning the one who alone occupies the position of God. Again, we said God is a title for a being, the living and true God, but God is also a position. And that lie dethroned the true and living God from the position of God. And in a sense, we did become gods, didn't we? We started worshiping ourselves. That's what Paul says here. There's this beautiful, dark poetry about his indictment of homosexuality in this chapter. It's not a tangent or just this random sin that he picks out to, 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 to single out what is homosexuality. It's the closest thing that you can get to worshiping yourself in another. 
It's the closest configuration that you can manage to worshiping yourself in another. That's why it's the height of what he's getting at here, because we did become gods, gods of death. (laughs) Because that's what happens when anyone other than the true and living God is worshipped as God. And it's a dreadful, pitiable, pitiful condition. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Just picture these dark worlds that open up, bowing down to lizards, fish, bulls, goats. The poetry of God's judgment. You shall rule over the earth. You take a step back and look at human history and you get human beings bowing down to animals. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. And he would have been right to leave us there. But Paul doesn't. He says that all have been found in such a dreadful state. There is none who does good. None have worshipped the true and living God. Jew, Gentile alike, all guilty. And this in God's infinite wisdom to prepare for the Lord Jesus Christ. The only righteous one. The only one who worshipped the true and living God with every breath that he took, with every step that he took, with every thought that he mustered with every desire that passed his mind with every action which attended his trajectory all of it worshipped his father all of it laid at his father's feet his life accepted as that blessed and perfect sacrifice to redeem us from worshiping ourselves. And the dark world that we've been pleased to make by such foolish and egregious worship. So give thanks if the Lord has snatched you from the delusion of self-worship. Give thanks if he's snatched you from yielding your worship to another. Give thanks that he was pleased to do eternal good unto sinners who treacherously refused to honor him as God. Give thanks that he was pleased to do this while we were his enemies unto the praise of his glorious grace. And then mourn, mourn that we still have this foolishness in us, mourn that we still get confused, that we still can manage to think that it's reasonable to question whether there's a God, that somehow it's understandable maybe if we're not all that thankful. (laughs) It's reasonable to think that, yeah, we've gotten a wrong 
and raw deal. We've got that in us, and it's mourn worthy, for he's shown us plainly, not just in creation, but in redemption, that he's good. And then seek the grace which he gives freely in the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace to expel those doubts. The grace to expel that folly. The grace to yield our lives unto him more and more as the only one who is worthy of our worship. May he be pleased to do so for all of us. Let's pray. Mm. How good and how great thou art, O Lord. Uh, reprove us, correct us, teach us, encourage us, build us up as your people, by your word, by your spirit, as you exalt our King and our God. For we ask in his name. Amen. Mm.